Jennifer Palker is the author of Recoding America and a pioneer in making government work for people in the digital age. She founded Code for America in 2010 and in 2013 took a leave of absence to serve as Barack Obama's deputy CTO and helped found the United States Digital Service. In 2020, she co-founded United States Digital Response, which helps government meet the needs of the public with volunteer tech support. Her TED Talk, Coding a Better Government, has been viewed over a million times and Wired magazine named as one of the 25 people who has most shaped the past 25 years. Like the books of James Plunkett, Lou Dan and Mark Schwartz, who we've also interviewed for Primer, Recoding America gets right to the heart of what current and future leaders need to be thinking about to make public services better for everyone. This is your Primer with Jen Palka. Hi, Jen. Welcome to Primer. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to take you back to 2013. You've just gone to the White House as deputy CTO, and at that time, the Obama administration is revving up for the launch of healthcare.gov. This is the site that's going to administer the Affordable Care Act. And aside from being desperately needed, it's also the primary policy showcase for Obama's second term in office. That's right. So you've been there about three months, and they switch this thing on for the first time. What happens next? Sadly, there were millions of people trying to sign up for health care under the Affordable Care Act. And the site was able to serve just eight people on its first day. So it was quite the emergency for this administration who had fought such a really hard political battle to get this act passed. It was, you know, so many chapters of, uh, of, of you know, sort of hand-to-hand <laughs> uh, political combat um, and threats, and um, the Republicans were trying to repeal it at every stage. I mean, even after it passed, there were many, many threats to it from Congress. But the reality that the site itself would be a threat, that because the whole program relied on being able to enroll people. If you didn't have enough people enrolled, none of the economics of this worked. And so, you know, that first day when the White House realized that this site essentially wasn't working, when they realized this, they realized that not only did they have a very faulty delivery system, they had potentially on their hands now the failure of a policy that they had worked so hard to pass. So as well as this being a new, very high-profile public service, Obamacare, as it was dubbed, was also an extremely partisan political issue. Yes. And you've got a small army of geeks trying to rescue healthcare.gov. How did that go? And what lessons do you think the White House learned from this? So I do want to take a little bit of issue with the word rescue just because my boss, Todd Park, um, really a wonderful, inspiring human being, got this group of geeks together over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, and they went in and they helped enormously. Um, I think without them, probably the site would not have come back and the the policy wouldn't have succeeded in the way that it did. Um, obviously, you have a White House in absolute chaos, um, 
you know, trying to focus on its job one of getting the site back up. But of course, the White House is a couple thousand people, almost none of whom have any technical knowledge to help do that, right? It was really Todd and the people that he recruited. So you've got a, peop- a lot of people, you know, working 24-7 on the communications. But the, you know, the reality that of all these incredibly smart, incredibly dedicated public servants, none of them really had any technical capacity. Uh, but that did not change their mind uh, or many of their minds. Um and I felt we were still on the slow roll track for quite some time. And, you know, I think ultimately the White House did learn the lesson that, you know, per, you have the threats of politics, but you also have the threat of implementation. And if you're prepared only for the former and not the latter, you may win the battle, but lose the lose the war. But I will say, you know, I went and did some research when I was writing this book and that feeling that digital competence is not welcome and is not wanted in this sort of most powerful place in U.S. government, uh, the Office of Management and Budget within the White House, which is where I was standing up USDS, um, or at least came to stand up USDS, um, inspired a bit by the structure of GDS. Um, that it was not a new experience. Um, I I found stories of the passage of a law called the Klinger Cohen Act in 1995, in which two members of Congress asked the White House to take on digital strategy, and the answer from the White House was no, thank you. This is not work for policy people. Um, and in fact, the deputy director of management for the OMB at the time said in testimony. Um, that does that can belong over at GSA, the General Services Administration, where things are bought, not where 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 important people do policy. Um, this is operational in nature, and this is the quote, and inconsistent with the policy role of this institution. Now, I did not know that when I was working at the White House, but when I read that several years later, doing research for Recoding America, I thought, oh. That's what I was dealing with. That's why there was still so much resistance to having a unit within the White House. And Jen, tell me, why did why did you end up standing up USDS in the White House rather than GSA? Yes. Well, what happened was that uh, I had been working to stand it up at GSA, despite my view that it ought to be at the at the White House. Now, to put some nuance on that. There, it really did belong in both places. And, you know, uh, spoiler alert, we got it in both places, essentially. But GSA is, uh, you know, called America's Buyer. It's the agency that helps agencies buy things. They buy pencils. They buy, you know, fleets of cars. They manage all of the buildings, uh, almost all the buildings in, in the U.S. federal government. So um, it absolutely makes sense that what agencies need most is is digital expertise. They all were craving that. And that place that was found to put the um, what became a unit called 18F uh, was in a, uh, a fund where they could actually have agencies pay them back. So essentially you would hire 18F um, and your work would be reimbursed. So it was a revolving fund, but you it was an internal consultancy instead of hiring one of the Beltway bandits. Um, 
it's not that I thought that was a bad idea. It's that I felt like there should also be something at the White House that wasn't reimbursable, that wasn't dependent on the agency essentially deciding to hire you, but where the White House could say, in the nicest possible way, you know, we didn't really want to be elbowing our way in, but when something like healthcare.gov is failing and there is a lot more at stake than just, you know, that agency's budget line, um, you kind of needed the ability to say, look, we're sending this team to help. We want to do it in the most, you know, least disruptive possible way, but you need the help and they are coming. And that is really the difference between these two units. Um, they, they sort of have different, they're funded in different ways and they have sort of different kinds of authorities, though they share, of course, the same set of iterative user-centered practices. I want to come back to public health for a moment. In the book, you mentioned Yolanda Richardson, who you work with on the COVID vaccination rollout in California. And uh, when we were talking that day, I got the impression there was a bigger story about the impact of the pandemic on the civil service. Well, the first three chapters of the book are about how, uh, about my work with the Employment Development Department, which is what administers unemployment insurance benefits in the state of California, where I mostly live. And I had uh, sort of two very, very busy months working with her as co-chairs of this task force that went into uh, EDD and helped clear a backlog of 1.3 million claims. And uh, I got to see a really incredible civil servant in, in, in action. She had also just gone through being sort of Governor Newsom's key person on all of moving government to remote and, you know, policies around COVID. And I mean, she was not exactly like, you know, fresh off vacation when we started working on this incredibly intense, uh, intense job of, of, of getting those, those claims paid. Um, but afterwards, she was also then asked to manage the vaccination role once we had vaccines to provide the public. And I just was, you know, honestly amazed at how hard she'd been working for how long. By the way, I think she is the story of how public servants had to work during COVID and what they gave to their country. I mean, 18 hour days for sometimes months, often years on end with no break, no weekends, you know, with the sort of the weight of the world on them. I don't think the public realizes how much people gave of themselves. In the UK, we had civil servants and public servants working crazy hours in very, very trying circumstances, while politicians essentially publicly trolled them. And there's a real fallout from it this year. I know a lot of really good people who are leaving the civil service because they just can't understand why that happened. Was there a similar thing in the US? And I mean, I think the big story there to me is that, um, you know, the public was incredibly disappointed with, with the vaccine rollout even more than the rollout of COVID testing. And their perceptions of what was wrong are just so poorly mapped to the reality of our public health system. Uh, somebody I was working with at the time when I was trying to help Yolanda um, just under, you know, I just needed some basic situational awareness said, Jen, you don't understand like the public, so public health here in the United States is administered really at the county level. 
So people think, okay, the federal government has, uh, you know, very heroically helped these vaccines come to market at an incredible pace. Yay, this is a federal government problem. Well, getting this vaccine into your arm is the problem of states and counties. We have 50 states plus three territories, so essentially 53 states. Our, my state in California has 58 counties. And so what each public health office in a county in the United States has as its own resources are, are tiny. And, and what this person tried to help me understand is we think of this as like an enterprise, a system, a government. These are like mom and pop shops. These are like, these have approximately the technical capacity of a corner store. Like they are running on spreadsheets. Like, uh, and that, you know, incredibly heterogeneous group of, you know, essentially small businesses are responsible for getting these shots in people's arms. We have 300 million people in this country. And the, the difficulty of doing that when they all have their own systems, even in a, in one state, each county will have very heterogeneous ways of collecting data, ways of reporting that data, um, uh, ways of communicating with the pharmacies and medical groups that are going to get those shots in your arms. Um, the, 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 the difficulty of that job is orders of magnitude harder than the public realizes and also, I think, completely not fixed in the way that you would think a crisis would spur change. It's so hard to fix that I think if we had another COVID tomorrow, we would have pretty much the exact same problems. Because it is nothing, and it really does not have to do that much with technology. Technology is the expression of a structural problem in which they, you know, the counties have the freedom legally to do how, what, do this however they want to do. There's really no authority that has come along to say, no, we're going to standardize how these uh, local public health officials do their jobs. These local public health offices um, are structured, the, you know, the ways they gather data and the ways they, they um, communicate and operate. And so since that structural change hasn't happened, the technology is not going to change and we're going to get the same outcomes, essentially. I mean, I'm not saying there haven't been some attempts at progress and probably some of them have worked a little bit. But until there's structural change, there will be continued, you know, real disjuncture between the public's expectations and our outcomes. Yeah, it's disappointing, isn't it? One of our previous guests, James Plunkett, in his book End State, talks about how the public sector was forced to act in a more agile way during the pandemic and the government suddenly found it had all these, these tools to move much more quickly and use real-time data for decision-making. And we were saying at the time how we both really hoped these tools wouldn't just be put back behind the safety glass and we wouldn't snap back to business as usual. But it feels to me like that is happening on both sides of the pond. It, I definitely feel that that's happening. Um, the one exception I would say, um, and this gets to um, some of the work I did helping stand up this group called United States Digital Response, is that you had so many people gain skills uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, the COVID happened sort of right around the time Airtable was becoming popular. 
and it, you know, a sort of set of low code, no code tools. And so suddenly you had this, this, um, combination of tools that could do a little bit more than say your spreadsheet could do. Um, and the need for those tools. So you had people responsible for say, standing up a new benefit in a county and they were coming to USDR, which was basically matching volunteer tech folks, tech and design and data folks with um, largely local uh, government folks who said like, I have this need, there is no way I can go through a procurement process, a contracting process you know, hire a traditional vendor to stand up this emergency rental assistance application form, for instance, it needs to happen tomorrow. I'm just going to have to, you know, learn how to, well, I don't think they necessarily thought I have to learn to do it. They were coming to USDR and saying, can you do this for us? And of course you have the problem of sustainability. So we would say there's going to be say a type form front end and a, um, uh, um, an air table back end. And not only can we get this going for you, but we can teach you how to do this yourself and you're going to be able to administer it because we got to get this going and then we got to go help somebody else. And we'd had public servants who didn't even, they didn't consider themselves technologists or digital professionals at all. They just had the responsibility of standing up this form who were like, I have no choice but to learn Airtable, right? (laughs) And they did. And those people still have those skills. And it's it's really deeply, I think, empowered them when you have big contractors now coming and saying, if you want a form that's going to take data from the public, that's going to be $17 million. They're like, no, it's not. <laughs> I can do that tomorrow. But, but I do think that um, those while those skills will persist, you're, I completely agree that the Agility, the the ability to question whether various processes and procedures were truly necessary, um, for instance, um, that that we had at COVID has evaporated now that it feels like less of an emergency, which is crazy because there could be an emergency tomorrow. I mean, we, we could be back there tomorrow given the lack of progress that we're making. And it's incredibly short-sighted. Let's... Uh, let's talk about USDR. In 2020, you co-founded United States Digital Response as a non-profit that uses tech volunteers essentially to boost state capacity. Is that a good way of saying it? I think it's a great way to say it. I mean, it's not the language that we tend to use around it, but it's true. <laughs> so tell me a bit more about how all that started and what are, what are the aspirations for its future? So... Basically, what happened was as shelter-in-place orders came down, I had friends, you know, running off, for instance, the state of California um, to help with the, you know, the data modeling, so they could understand. One of the big things that were were technologists came in to play in those first weeks was, uh, you know, working with Johns Hopkins and others to get the data models together, so we could understand at all what was going on. Um, and a friend of mine who was going to help with that effort said, you need to come. And I, I could not leave home at the time and, and go be in person. And I said, well, what else could I do? And, and, and uh, this is DJ Patil, who was the first chief data scientist of, um, of, the, of the country. He said, look, well, um, 
you know, organize the volunteers. So my two former colleagues who had also been deputy CTOs in the White House under Obama, one of them was Ryan Pantasodrum, who famously had put up the website, the sort of form for volunteers when Obamacare, when healthcare.gov had crashed. He just, I think he actually just re-put up that old form because it asked the same things like, what kind of skills do you have? When can you start? So he was collecting um, volunteers I had started getting a lot of inbounds from local government who knew our work through Code for America. Um, our friend Corey Zarek, who had been another deputy CTO, was working at the Beck Center at the time and had all these local governments already working in working groups with her. And then we had um, a friend who just come out of Stripe as an engineering leader who you know, also had a bunch of, of, of technical friends who wanted help. So the four of us came together and essentially just created a clearinghouse where we could match needs with talent. And it was, you know, hugely helpful. And I think that we put some good guardrails in place. The first thing we did was had our volunteers sign a pledge, essentially, not to be jerks. It was just like, don't come in and judge. Don't come in and lecture them about their poor infrastructure and their poor tech capacities. Your job is to help and not to judge and and to, you know, you need to be supportive of public servants in this time of crisis. So we put some great, um, I think, guardrails in place that created a culture that has lasted. Now, of course, we're no longer standing up data pipelines for personal protective equipment, PPE, which was one of the common things we got in the beginning. That's passed. But the notion that governments have the capacity that, you know, that they need, of course, is, is crazy. You know, just because COVID's over doesn't mean they have it. So the needs have remained. The desire for help from local and state and federal government has, has persisted. And what's surprising to me is that the desire to volunteer by tech folks has also not waned. In fact, many more are like, this is great. Now, to some degree, we've had a bunch of tech layoffs here. So you've got more people saying, well, I hear that it's incredibly meaningful to work with government. Maybe I can try that. Maybe I don't want to just, you know, lots of them are going straight into government, but a lot are saying, let me try it out first. Um, one of the areas, for instance, that is really relevant to what we just talked about with the local public health offices is elections. One of the programs that USDR runs right now is helping local election officials. Now, in a small county you know, especially a small rural county here in the U.S., an elections office may be two people. They, and they do not have sophisticated tools. They are using whatever is around, essentially. You know, for better or worse, they don't have the millions of dollars to go hire, you know, some big contractor. Um, of course, like voting machines, there's, you know, stuff there, but things like managing the lines or, you know, checking database and stuff, they have so many needs. Um and that's just one example of, of the ways in which the, the, that dynamic from COVID of really low capacity, um, high needs, and desires from the tech industry to help out are just continuing to match up in, in really beautiful ways. And I'm very proud of the team. I only really worked on that project for a couple of months before I had to go back to, well, to working on the EDD project, um, which essentially was, was my own volunteer uh, gig. Um, and then working on the book, but it has become an organization, I think, with fantastic culture of support of public servants and sustainability. They're they're really working, I think, on a problem essentially 
of not only sustainability of the organization, but sustainability of the civil service. How do you help uh, not only help a public servant get through a moment of crisis, but how do you help a public servant develop the skills they will need to do it without you the next time? Uh, we are so lucky to have Hillary Hartley, who was part of that team who started 18F at GSA all the way back in 2013, and then went and became the head of digital for the province of Ontario uh, in Canadian government for six years, is now running USDR. And she's just a fantastic leader who understands so profoundly the challenges that public servants face and really sees how USDR can not only just help take care of an immediate need, but really long-term sustainably help change the culture and capacities of the government. So it, it, this is an organization with an incredibly bright future. Jen, at the end of the book, you quote Carl Deutsch, where he says, power is the ability to afford not to learn. And a lot of the people watching or listening to this will have felt the weight of that belief pressing down on them as they try to find a crack in the monolith they can squeeze some change through. And, uh, and you wrote recently, and I'm slightly paraphrasing, uh, if elected and appointed leaders want to use government to get different outcomes than simply writing new law or policy, they need to look at how they behave. But that's a very hard conversation to have. So acknowledging there are no easy answers and it's a work in progress, how do you think about changing the behaviours and ways of working that are needed to get from policy intent to delivery outcome? But let me first say, I think that an analogy that might be helpful is if elected leaders are sort of the stewards in, this, in a certain sense of the bureaucracy underneath them that is supposed to get them the outcomes that they intend through their law and policy, then, you know, it might be helpful to think of them as gardeners. So gardeners want to get, you know, they plant a, a flower, say, and they want the flower to bloom, and then they have the flower as their pretty thing that they can show off to their constituency. Um, but we have gardeners who are focused only on planting seeds and hoping that they grow and not on the soil in which it's they're planting. Um, they have forgotten it is also their job to fertilize and water that soil. And in that metaphor, that is the civil service is that is the, the, you know, the foundation from which we get those outcomes. You don't get your pretty flower if your soil is depleted and our soil is depleted. And I don't mean that as an insult to civil servants. I mean, we are extracting too much out of them without feet, without giving back to them, without investing in them, without asking what is the composition of that soil that we need? We have a civil service that was built essentially for the 1970s, not for 2023. So we have a lot of people who have been, you know, who simply, they, I think they would do the right job if asked to do it, but they are simply doing a job that is not helpful um, instead of a job that would actually get those outcomes. Um, we have civil service hiring rules that are sorely out of date and getting in many ways, the exact opposite outcome that the law and policy governing civil service intends, because we have put so much pressure on the HR people and government to um, comply with a bunch of, uh, you know, meaningless processes and procedures instead of hiring the right people for the right jobs. Um, 
So what would it look like, you know, for them to change that mindset? Um, I end the book on a couple of great stories, um, particularly one of a 25-year veteran of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you know, somebody who who learned agile, user-centered development through that healthcare.gov rescue effort and, you know, just took it as far as it could go. She's just really, I think, the best practitioner of making government services make sense to people, in the words of her team, that I've ever seen um, didn't come from the outside, but came from, you know, within the agency. And what she does is, would be surprising to people because she interprets the law and policy that's handed down to her liberally enough that she can make it make sense to people. And you have a civil service that's sort of almost taking the law policy and regulation that's handed down to them literally. And when they take that literally, it has a perverse effect. Whereas when someone like uh, Yadira Sanchez, this this amazing public servant at CMS, says, for instance, I, I know I've been charged with um, putting out quarterly data dumps, but a better way to do that is to make an API and we're just going to do that. And she is literally not following the letter of the law. I think so much of the culture of government says, you're going to go to jail for that. That's awful. And instead, you know, Congress is thrilled with her. I mean, they would be if they knew. She did her job better, faster, and cheaper than if she literally followed the letter of the law. And it is Congress's job then to say, that is the kind of public servant that we want to honor, elevate, celebrate, and that others should emulate. And they don't do that. They spend all of their time calling people up for failures and none of their time elevating people like Yadira. So that's one sort of practical thing they could do. They could invite people like Yadira, you know, and and many others to the table when they are writing that legislation so that they wouldn't write a quarterly data dump in the first place. They would write either do an API or find a way up to you to get this data to the ecosystem that needs it. Um, those, you know, we don't we don't invite implementation teams to the table when we're writing law and policy, which is a big, big miss. We just create so much chaos and drama because of that. Gardens, not flowers. It's a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone will love being compared to soil, but. <laughs> so that seems like a great thought to end on before we go. Um, can you tell people where they can find out more about you and the book? Yes, recodingamerica.us is a sort of uh, homegrown website where I put some of the resources for those who want to follow up. Um, it's for people in tech that are considering going into government. It's for people in government who want to pursue uh, some of these practices. And it's certainly, I hope, for people who want to get to that last question we just talked about, which is how would we change the environment in which civil servants are asked to work? And what is everybody's role in that? It is, it is not just the job of our elected leaders. It, it's our job as well. Jen, I loved your book. And a lot of the people I know are talking about it and taking inspiration from you. So thank you for writing it. Well, I thank you for that. And really, I think the credit goes to all the amazing people that I got to interview to make the book happen. And it's their work and their willingness to do that work in spite of incredible obstacles that, that made that made the book work. Jen Palka, 
Thanks for speaking to us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.